Last week, we looked and uh, saw the seventh climactic seal opened. And in the silence, the seal was opened. There was a silence that followed. Incense was offered with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And that sparked. That gave rise to the throwing down of judgment from heaven to earth in answer, response to the prayers of the saints. In the form of that judgment was the seven trumpet blasts. The saints are history's aggressors because it is their prayers that precipitate these judgments. And these trumpet judgments, we've been asserting, are wrapping back to the beginning, covering the same ground as the seals, only in a more intense form, a heightened form. And so last week we looked at the first four trumpets, and this morning we'll look at the fifth and the sixth trumpets. So we'll make four points. An introduction, the fifth trumpet, the sixth trumpet, and the results. They're there in your bulletin outline. First, then, the introduction, Revelation 8, chapter 8, verse 13, John looks and he hears an an eagle crying with a loud voice. Now, this, this eagle here has to be stripped of all noble American connotations. This is a vulture. It's a scavenger. An unclean bird of prey. And he announces a threefold woe, 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 woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the blasts of the trumpet which are about to be sounded by the other three angels. You might recall we said that these seals and trumpets, there's seven of them, in general they have a four plus three pattern. We see that here. Four trumpets, then an angel says the last three are marked off as special woes. The first four trumpets, they were poured out, we saw this last week, on the four realms of creation. The earth, the sea, fresh water, and the sky. These last three trumpets are going to directly affect unbelieving people. So, unbelievers are in view here as the target of these trumpet plagues, if you will. And that's seen in the text in the fact that verse 13 calls them the inhabitants of the earth, or literally those who dwell on the earth. This is an important phrase in the book of Revelation, those who dwell on the earth. It always refers, always, to those who side with the empire, to those who side with the beast, with the total state, against the people of God, against the church which in Revelation never dwells on the earth, but dwells in heaven. This right here, this piece of land, this, this stuff, this is not the location of the church. The church dwells in heaven. Her actual space is in heaven. And these plagues, these trumpet judgments, they come on those who dwell on the earth. So that's the introduction. Take a look at the first, our second point is the fifth trumpet. So the fifth angel blows his trumpet and John sees a star fallen from from heaven to earth. 
And stars in Scripture are often angels. We saw this in chapter 1, the beginning of the book, where the seven stars in Jesus' right hand were symbolic of the angels of the seven churches. And this star here is certainly Satan himself. He falls, he tumbles from his position of authority as a result of Jesus' earthly ministry. You might remember, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus, after he sent his disciples out, he sent them out with authority over demons, they return rejoicing, and Jesus says to them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Again, it's the ministry of Christ and the prayers of the saints in response to him which cause a sort of throwing down of the demonic into the earth, an unleashing of dark powers. It's interesting in that Luke passage, in Luke 10, Jesus goes on to tell his disciples, and I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, two creatures which then figure prominently in our passage here this morning. So the identification of this star with Satan is sealed by verse 11. If you look down at verse 11, we learn that The the demonic forces which are unleashed have a king over them. And the king is known as the angel of the bottomless pit or the angel of the abyss. And he has a name, Abaddon, which in Hebrew means destruction. And in Greek, his name is Apollyon, which means destroyer. By the way, it's almost... Certain, or it's highly likely that there's a dig here at the Roman emperor. Apollyon is a Greek word which is derived from Apollo. And the, emper- the emperors thought themselves to be manifestations of Apollo. Nero did. Domitian did. They thought they were manifestations of the Roman god Apollo, or the Greek god Apollo. And here, John is subtly saying, if you think that, you're demonic. Satan comes to kill and to steal and destroy. He's a destroyer. And so he's the fallen star here. Now, if you look back up at verse 1, he's given a key. He's given because he's under sovereign control. He's given a key to the shaft of the abyss. He's the king of the demons, and thus he has a key to the realm of the demons. He's a parody of King Jesus who has the keys of death and hell. And so he's got this key to this bottomless pit. And this bottomless pit here is symbolic of what you might think of as the demonic underbelly, which drives the great chaotic sea of history's rebellious nations and empires. History is not rational. You may have noticed that. We're not rational. Things are not driven by completely rational forces. There's an abyss of dark principalities and powers that are unleashed in the earth. And here he opens the shaft of the pit and he lets loose these hellish forces. Smoke, 
like that of a great furnace, rises. It darkens the sun in the sky. In addition to evoking the plague of darkness at the Exodus, this whole scene here is drawing a lot on the imagery in the prophet Joel, where Joel depicts this day of of judgment on Israel as a day of darkness and gloom with blackness spreading over the mountains. This is figurative, prophetic language for demonic oppression and judgment. And Joel depicts this day, which would actually happen through the invasion of a foreign army. He depicts it as a plague of locusts. Again, another Egyptian exodus plague. And that's what we get here. Verse 3. From the smoke came locusts on the earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. So this is an image to those who understood the Old Testament prophets that would conjure up fears of invading armies, barbarian hordes invading the Roman Empire with scorpion-like powers, meaning they're demonic. So if it needs to be said, there's no literal scorpions or snakes or smoke in the text. This is symbolic prophetic language for the unleashing of forces of judgment in history which are demonically driven. Now the fact that these powers, dark principalities and powers, can embody themselves, they can situate themselves in history in actual armies, in actual regimes and institutions. That's not John's main concern here. His point is the demonic nature of the fifth trumpet, the first woe. And these these demon locusts are told in verse 4 not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, which is surely strange behavior for locusts. Right. The, The point here is Simple, the judgments of the first four trumpets were poured out on the created order, the various realms of the creation. These are poured out on unbelieving people. More specifically, these locusts, these demonic powers, they don't have the power to harm those who have the seal of God. This is a crucial point throughout this section of Revelation that those who have the seal of God on their foreheads are safe doesn't mean they won't suffer. It doesn't even mean they won't die. But it means no spiritual harm will befall them in the midst of the chaos and the convulsions of history. And so, the harm that they can inflict is specified as either torment or torture in verse 5 for five months. This is almost certainly a reference to the spiritual torment of the wicked. Satan is a cruel master. He torments his own. And he often does it through the the self-destructive nature of wickedness. Wickedness is intrinsically something which harms human flourishing, human beings, And thus, in in Romans chapter 1, the most fearsome kind of judgment which God allows to happen to civilizations is that God gives them over. 
three or four times in Romans 1, right, we get this phrase, and the Lord gave them over, and the Lord gave them over, and the Lord gave them over. So men rebel against God, and God says, fine, go ahead. And in that rebellion, there's a kind of destructiveness, an unraveling, an addiction. Sin has that sort of power, and it leads to torment. And that torment is demonic in nature. And that's depicted here in this text. The fact that it lasts only five months is probably a literary thing evoking the normal locust season. But the main point is that it's limited. It's under sovereign control. These forces are not allowed here to kill their victims, but torment them with this scorpion-like sting. And the, the, the torment is sharp. It's acute. Verse 6 says people will seek death, but it won't be an option. Now, This dynamic is actually quite visible in life. Even a person who doesn't believe in demonic supernatural forces can observe something of it if they observe the addictive, self-destructive power of particular patterns of behavior. Human beings know quite well that their behavior is tormenting them. And yet they are unable to be liberated from it. It's a dreadful, dreadful picture of being tormented and rather wanting to die and being unable to die. It's a foretaste of the torment of hell. Now I know hell is a quite controversial doctrine. Preachers stay away from it. And it's not everywhere in the Bible. But one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons I'm convinced that the Christian conception of the afterlife is true is because I can see the dynamic of it right in front of my own eyes. I see the wreckage. I know the torment. And so I know them. we see it. And so there's a sense in which the phrase such and such or such a type of life is a living hell is in fact very true. In other words, it allows me to understand human misery. So these locusts are further described in verses 7 through 10 quite at length. Again, evoking Joel, a foreign army, horses prepared for battle, crowns of gold, because they follow the king of the abyss. They have human faces and hair like women's hair, evoking again a barbarian horde, probably with blonde hair from northern Europe, because that was feared in the empire. John is evoking first century fears here. It's a demonic kind of cavalry. He pictures them as having lion's teeth, breastplates of iron, locust wings with a great noise rushing into battle. The point is simply not to get lost in the details because there's a lot of detail here. This is an army of demonic forces which afflicts and which torments the enemies of God, those who dwell on the earth throughout the church age. It's a picture of of the kind of spiritual warfare 
supernatural reality we are engaged in all the time. And John is reminding us of that. So this is a graphic description. In some ways, it's very un-Presbyterian. Presbyterians are staid. We don't like to find demons under every rock. That's a good instinct. But nevertheless, there are dark, demonic forces unleashed in the world. And they result in torments. And so with this, the fifth trumpet, the first woes passed, the text says. The sixth trumpet then, the third point is blown. And it's really complementary to the fifth. The fifth tormented, death fled, this woe is lethal, it kills. Look at verse 13, this chapter 9, verse 13. John hears a voice from the, the four horns of the golden incense altar. Again, this is the altar from which the prayers of the saints rise to God. It's always important to keep coming back to that. We often think that this stuff is just happening to us in life, and then we're responding to it with prayer, or trying to heal it with prayer, or trying to redirect it with prayer. John says, no, no, your prayers cause the whole mess. And so this voice tells this angel to release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Same four angels we met in chapter 7 who stood at the four corners of the earth and restrained the seal judgments. Right? This trumpet is rescinding that restraint. Again, why mention the prayers of the saints right before that? Again, it's John's way of saying your prayers are like fire. Your prayers convulse the world. And these angels are bound at the, at the Euphrates because of its biblical significance. To the north of Israel. It's where Ezekiel sees Gog and Magog coming for some final battle. It's the direction, it's the place where, from which Babylon and Assyria invaded Israel. And the Euphrates is on the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And the feared Parthian Empire was lying just beyond the river. And the Parthians had already, already in the, in the 60s of the first century, defeated the Roman armies twice. They were scared of what lies beyond the Euphrates. There was a myth um, that um, after Rome was burned in the 60s and Nero died, that Nero had not actually died but that Nero had escaped to the east and was planning to reconquer the empire and come back as the head of the Parthian cavalry. It's called the Nero Redivivus myth. You can Google it. It's a very well-known myth. This text is evoking those fears. It's not alluding to those events, I don't think, but it's certainly evoking that kind of fear. And the, these angels... Notice the text says they were kept ready for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. That is, all this chaos is somehow under God's inscrutable purpose, where there's a time and a purpose, a season for everything under heaven. They're released, they kill a third of mankind. Again, it's a partial, restrained calamity. Nevertheless, it's devastating. 
Now, again, in the, the immediate first century context, this probably refers to the temporal calamities, the calamities which befell the empire before her collapse. Turns out, of course, in the text that these angels, they don't actually do the killing. They unleash an army, an actual army. John hears the number of them in verse 16, 200 million. It's a symbolic number, actually. It just means a real lot. And he describes again the horses and their riders in a vision. I'm not going to go over all the details here, but the fire and the smoke and the sulfur which comes out of their mouths, verse 18 says, is what kills a third of mankind. I'm going to make a few basic points here about what we're seeing and what this text means. First of all, the references to fire and sulfur evoke they, they, are, they anticipate the end of the book where fire and sulfur will actually destroy the satanic dragon and the beast. The beast is the imperial state. And so John is setting something up here. He's setting up the fact that demonic powers will suffer the same fate that they inflict on their victims. An eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth. And notice, there's an emphasis on their mouths of these riders as instruments of death. And this probably refers to demonic lies and deceit which destroy and kill. We'll see a lot more of this in Revelation. It's about ideas and ideology and worldviews and propaganda. The Roman beast actually has a propaganda arm which seduces people to worship the state. This emphasis, then, on stuff coming out of their mouths, which deceives and torments, is again a parody. It's a parody of the two-edged sword by which justice and truth and just judgments come out of the mouth of Christ. So, the sixth trumpet, it's a picture of demons which kill their subjects, in this case by means of warfare. So the fourth thing then is the result, and the result is quite simple. Here we have in the text a very Jewish and a very Christian expression of revulsion against and denunciation of idolatry. The text says, in the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands. That's an astounding statement. Especially if you've taken the time and the labor to read carefully through chapter 8 and 9 in Revelation. It's an astonishing picture of human depravity and addiction to evil. Tormented by demons driven and even killed by satanic wickedness, even on a large scale, men do not repent. Part of the reason they don't repent, by the way, is they don't read the judgments the way John reads them. They just think, well, a bunch of random strange stuff is happening. It's another day. These judgments of God 
restrained warning judgments often do not have the effect of causing repentance. They often result in greater hardening. So in a sense, John is trying to shock you. You know, horses and sulfur and fire and scorpions and tails and stings and torment and torture and death. And by the way, everybody who saw this, they didn't repent. The ancient paradigm for this is, of course, Pharaoh. Having seen and suffered through what he saw, nevertheless, his heart was hardened. At World War I and World War II, they haven't led to much of a reconsideration of anything among Europeans. If anything, they've led them away from the faith. Then we have the modern sexual revolution, where the deaths of 30 million people, and here I leave aside the psychic cost, the social costs, the STDs, the divorce rate, the dehumanization, the vulgarity, none of this. It doesn't matter how many bodies you stack up, how many families you, you mangle. None of it leads to a reevaluation of the behavior which caused the destruction. But in fact, it leads to an embrace, a normalization, a celebration of the very behavior. If you think demonic plagues cannot be poured out on whole continents, and then the result will be, and the rest of mankind did not repent, then you're naive about human nature. The evidence for this is right in front of your eyes. Demons torment, demons kill. They never give life, they never satisfy, and men continue in their addiction to and their defense of their own self-destruction. This is why at the heart of the faith is the holy love of God incarnate in the midst of his people who are screaming, crucify him. And when men do not repent, and what they do not give up in the middle of verse 20 is called the worshiping of demons. And demon worship is essentially idolatry. The text says they worship demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. That is, they worship the creation instead of the creator. In the immediate context, it's the empire again. The great idol in Revelation is the beast and his seductive power, the benefits of the empire, the security of the empire, the, the, the uh, array of religious cults in the empire, behind which lie demonic forces. Worship the empire, worship Caesar, John says, and you worship demons. And then he uses this typical, John does in verse 20, prophetic satire. They can't see, they can't walk, they can't hear these idols. I mean, even humans can do these things. But the idols that people worship can't do it. They're impotent. And we become like, this is a key thing John is trying to teach us. We become like what we worship. You are being conformed to the stuff you worship. And there are no non-worshippers in the world. So if we worship God, hopefully we're becoming more gracious and godlike. 
If you worship sex, you're becoming an infantile, puerile sensualist. If you worship power, you're becoming egotistical and maniacal. If you worship money, you're becoming greedy. If you worship technology, well, you're becoming whatever, whatever it is. But I think you get the pattern. The point is, idol worshipers become spiritually blind and mute and immobile and lame like the idols they worship. You become like the thing which is the ultimate allegiance in your life. And you have no choice on this. You can't stand outside this dynamic and say, oh no, that's not happening to me. And so it's dreadful because we end up trapped and unable to repent. And John finally lists the sins which here are the dominant sins after idolatry of the empire. And it's the 6th, 7th, and 8th commandments, plus sorcery. He says in the text, they did not repent of their murders, that's the 6th commandment, or their magic arts, sorcery, or their sexual immorality, that's the 7th, or their thefts, that's the 8th commandment. Now, I don't think we as a nation are any better. We haven't repented of our murders. We're at 55 million and counting. We've turned it into a veritable sacrament. Our sexual immorality, we celebrate that. We're down with it because we're modern. Our thefts, hey, we bail out the offenders. You know, there's something in John to offend you whether your political sensibilities are on the left or the right. We institutionalize our thefts. As Bob Dylan once said, steal a little and they throw you in jail. Steal a lot and they make you king. Murder, sexual immorality, theft. Rome should have seen, they should have seen the hand of God in the demonic torment and death which afflicted them. But they don't. And neither has any empire or most empires since then. They just plod on. One thing about this kind of affliction, it has a short memory. Like it can't connect up past patterns of behavior and current cultural patterns. It forgets. And so, it's a shocking text. It's intended to shock. John is trying to Get the churches in Asia Minor and you and I out of our complacency. He wants you to see the hideous and the infernal behind the ordinary smiling facades of life, even our national political life. I've said this over and over, but I will say it again. The the fundamental thing that Revelation does for you, if you embrace it, is it says... Renarrate the world, renarrate the world, renarrate the world. Look at the world differently. Look at it from this heavenly perspective. See it this way, see it this way, see it this way. Do not let somebody else narrate the story for you or to you. It's an unnerving thing. But remember, it's your prayers which have rocked the world into this crisis. It's the ministry of Jesus 
in which Satan was thrown down into the earth, and then the prayers of the saints. And the text is not very optimistic about mankind's prospects. But these judgments are partial, and there's still time in the book and in history for repentance. Perhaps part of what John is saying is if the judgments of God do not lead men to repentance, then surely perhaps the kindness and mercy of God will. The things that we seek outside of or apart from Christ will, if we pursue them to their logical conclusion. Now, you may flirt with them. You may dally with them. But if you pursue them to their logical conclusion, they will absolutely torment, enslave, kill, and destroy you. And so we have to repent continuously and renew our status as those sealed with the mark of God. And that's going to take prayer and discernment and work. The Lord's judgments are in the earth. We need to see it and recognize it in ourselves. And in our empire, our culture's bloodshed and immorality and greed. And flee from it. May the Lord have mercy on his sealed people. And may his judgments, together with his patient kindness, bring forth repentance in the earth. Amen.